Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, welcome. And thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. And that is, of course, your time. Today's clean energy champion, Shannon Miller, is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Mainspring Energy. She leads the design, manufacture, and commercialization of the Mainspring Linear Generator, a new type of clean power generator with a fuel agnostic design that enables switching between fuel types, including clean fuels, hydrogen, biogas, renewable natural gas, and even ammonia. This generator is designed to firm renewable power, which is why many of you are listening. And it's meant to increase grid reliability and resilience while accelerating the transition to clean fuels. How does it do that? Where did the idea come from? How did they go from zero to more than a half a billion in funds raised? All that and more we're going to explore in today's conversation with Shannon Miller. I hope that you are subscribed to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can find more ways to hear founder stories just like this one from Shannon in our more than 525 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, hope you'll get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Shannon, I am so happy to have a chance to finally get you on the show. It has been many months in the making. I'm grateful first and foremost to Maria Amundsen on your team for helping make this a reality, but I'm grateful for you because you are a busy entrepreneur taking time out of your busy, busy, busy week right now to, uh, to enjoy this conversation with me. Welcome finally to Suncast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Shannon, you have in many ways accomplished something that as entrepreneurs, we consider quite miraculous. Not only have you built a team, but you've built a technology, neither of which existed 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago. And you are demonstrably creating what might be considered a new category of power generation, of efficient electricity. And it at first seems like a really complex topic. So I thought I would start a little differently than our listeners might be used to for a Suncast interview. How would you describe a linear generator to my 11-year-old tinkerer of a child who, well, may look up to you as a role model? You know, many people are familiar with a rotary generator, so a regular electric generator where you have a rotor that has magnets on it and it spins inside a set of copper coils to produce electricity. And so what we do is we just take that that same rotor, but instead of rotating, it translates, it moves back and forth linearly. And so it still is a big tube with magnets on it that's going through a set of coils and it's producing electricity from that linear motion. And so that's why we call it a linear generator. And 
you know, in the mainspring linear generator, we actually have two of these big tubes with magnets on them and we put fuel and air in between them in the center. It reacts and it drives that linear motion back and forth through those copper coils. And that's how we make electricity. Would you introduce me to mainspring energy? What do you hope to accomplish as a company and and what is it this company is really about? So our vision is to accelerate the transition to a zero carbon grid. And we do that specifically by delivering a new category of power generation, as you, as you mentioned, called the linear generator. And so our goal is to deliver affordable, reliable, and fuel flexible power to businesses and utilities at a local level. So I think you mentioned a few of these features, but our system is dispatchable, so it can ramp up and down turn on and off. And that allows us to enable things like solar, wind, and then also add resiliency to the grid overall. And then we're also very fuel flexible, which helps customers shift from today's fuels, things like natural gas, but to biogas, hydrogen, and ammonia. You know, the grid is actually still 60% fossil fuels. And we need to put a whole lot more solar and wind on that grid. And then we need to firm that with clean firm power to get all the way to 100%. I think in the outset, it's really important to set the stage for folks around where this product and this category of product sits in the overarching landscape that is power generation. So who do you sell to and what problems do you solve for those clients? Yeah, so we sell to actually two different sets of customers. So we sell to customers like commercial businesses and industrial businesses. So think of Kroger, Mm -hmm the largest grocery store in the country lineage is a cold storage facility. These are commercial and industrial businesses that are trying to add resiliency, save money on their electricity and ultimately transition to zero carbon. And then there's utilities who are trying to accomplish the same thing, but on the grid side. And so we're working with, uh, with utilities to provide microgrid resiliency at the grid edge, help replace things like peakers and diesels that are a lot dirtier and then ultimately allowing them to, to transition to zero carbon as well. It's really fascinating for anyone who's listening as a, a solar developer. This is in many ways, especially if you are a developer that thinks in a comprehensive way about the arrows in your quiver, as it were. And, and I've encouraged folks to think in this way that as a solar developer, it just happens to be the preferred arrow for many solar developers or many developers broadly, if you're thinking really about how to transition us as quickly as possible to a zero carbon infrastructure, then as you've noted, many developers are are expanding what they think of as the capacity for the development portfolio to include energy storage. Many have included combined cycle plants to offer more firm power as they're getting into sort of esoteric products and dispatching like some of the bigger players like the light source and next eras and intersects of the world that are thinking beyond just simply build a plant, flip it to the, to a tax equity investor. So a lot of what you say here really resonates and I think offers the astute listener an opportunity to think about another way to bridge the gap that is intermittency of our products and really achieve that zero carbon future. We're going to get into that. But before we really dive into the technology, I'd love to pique folks' interest. You mentioned that Kroger is a client and Lineage is a client. We're definitely going to dive into those. But among the accolades and accomplishments, you've just announced an incredibly impressive 290 million Series E. First of all, congratulations. That's no small feat. 
So you've totaled more than half a billion raised. I think the number is teeters around 530 million. Lightrock led the Series E, joined by notable in, investors like Canadian Pension Plan, Investment Board, Shell Ventures, Hanwha Power Systems, and new private investors. Bill Gates, Coastal Ventures, many more continue to support you with each successive round. So I have to assume this now puts you squarely into that unicorn club with your good buddy Rob over at Monolith. Am I right? Yeah, we we typically don't talk a lot about valuation, but we're now hitting that milestone. Yes. <laughs> you know, I wonder, I mentioned Rob at Monolith. I know that there are a plethora of sort of peers of yours, uh, Stanford and other uh, famed academic institutions. Do you all still get together and share notes and think about like, how did we get here <laughs> this, at this stage of venture? You know, uh, it is helpful to have folks that have, that are building companies at the same time as you are, because they see a lot of the same, same things or struggling with a lot of the same issues and same questions. And so I've been fortunate to meet a number of really fantastic folks over the years to help answer, answer questions and go through the same, same questions over and over again. Yeah. Those of us on the outside looking in kind of, I sort of, uh, equate it to, I don't know if you're familiar with the inklings back in the day, the, the famed authors of, uh, the UK that would get together in London and share notes and ended up writing things, you know, like, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, all, all of the, the authors who in their own way would become synonymous with their category. Uh, and I, it does feel a bit like we are watching, you know, many of you all from Silicon Valley sort of move into that, that echelon where you've been sharing notes and, and pushing each other along for so long. And now each of you in, in turn is turning out these companies that are that are quite remarkable. So I just want to say, you know, congratulations on that. I know that you're going to use the funds now to scale manufacturing for many of the deals that we're going to discuss. But is there anything that you would say is non-obvious that a raise of this size and caliber does for the 10-year overnight success like Mainspring? And what might folks overlook about this latest funding round? I think as you get to, one of the things I've learned is as you get to later rounds, you tend at least for us, we tended to start working with investors that are very deeply focused on energy and climate. And oftentimes they're strategic investors. So like the folks you mentioned, you know, Lightrock has a team that's fully dedicated to focusing on climate. And so one of the things that we really loved about them is that they have a lot of other portfolio companies that we think could be great partners to us. So folks like uh, building electric, you know, hydrogen electrolyzers or biogas digesters. And so it exposes you to another network of folks that that could help accelerate your business and and could become partners. Similar, you know, CPPIB is a Canadian pension fund that you mentioned. They have a huge focus on energy, power generation, real estate, great partners in helping us scale. Shell is building out a lot of hydrogen infrastructure. Hanwha is very focused on solar with their Qcells line, but also hydrogen and ammonia. And so we saw a lot of these folks as really helping to accelerate our business and, and being tremendous partners. You know, among the tremendous partners that you mentioned, I think in your A round, Kozla Ventures became an early lead investor along with not through a fund, but directly none other than the luminary icon uh, business, Bill Gates, as an investor. I wonder what's it like being able to that early in a venture get, I presume input, but certainly feedback from such luminary investors as Kozla and Gates? Uh, well, it was 
very, very humbling. I'd say <laughs> Bill Gates is probably the most impressive person I've ever met. He he's obviously incredibly busy. He's got energy and healthcare and vaccines and education. And every once in a while we get 15 minutes with him. So it's not very much, but he is so impressive in terms of the preparation he does, the amount he's read, his the astuteness of his questions, and it's really, really humbling. So we're very fortunate in that uh we've had the the opportunity to to have that exposure. I have to ask, how do you prepare for your 15 minutes with Bill? Oh, it takes it's like an all out sprint from the moment we find out that we get the opportunity, we're um, sprinting to try to distill because, you know, often the, the shorter the presentation, the harder it is. Right. So, oh yeah, you're distilling and distilling and distilling with your team to try to get the essence of what you want to communicate down to something that's digestible in 15 minutes. So it's a, it's a full court press. <laughs> For someone who's never been through that experience, you know, that I think that there's a million questions I might have. The thing that stands out for me though, is you have to balance between being available to listen while giving enough information. I feel like there might be an assumption that, oh, like Bill or Vnud wants an update on where we're at. Whereas they may already come with 15 minutes more of questions than you have time to answer. How do you balance that mix of input versus output? Yeah, you want to, you don't want to use the whole 15 minutes to talk yourself. So you want to try to really distill down and get, you know, seven or eight minutes of presentation and you practice it so that you know that you can deliver it in seven or eight minutes and be very mm-hmm. quick and very concise and precise. And then, you know, hope that you've left enough room to get, get the input that you mentioned, because you're right. It's, it's really helpful. Well, you articulated really well, the sort of the leadership team approach, I feel to choosing how you find these venture firms. I wonder if there's anything that you might add in terms of the selection criteria. Some of it is you go out and you pitch to a bunch of folks and you look for a lead. Whereas at your stage as a series E, I would imagine that you are also being rather selective as it were, and informed by other investors as to how you find a lead venture firm for something as, as huge as a nearly 300 million round. Could you talk a bit about the conversations with your leadership team on choosing which venture firm to partner with as you scale up? Absolutely. I think we are looking for folks that are well aligned with our mission and our core values and our focus on climate. And so actually our Light Rock, we met through an existing investor that it was actually an investor that had been working with us who had left to start his own venture and invested and then connected us with with Light Rock uh, because mm. he knew that there was going to be strong alignment with climate, with with clean fuels and, and all of the areas that were focused. I think that it's also non-obvious for those who've been in the venture circle, it is maybe obvious that the venture firm is also going to bring around portfolio portfolio uh, partners and follow on investors who themselves are strategic and give you prospect and possibility to expand and scale and, and really drill down on that commercialization and ability to reinvest into project pipelines and things like that. You know, our our audience is historically focused on the solar aspect of clean energy and as such get lambasted for the intermittency of solar as a technology. Can you help us understand why is the linear generator that you've created ideal for shoring up this intermittency on the grid for technologies like solar and wind? And we actually, we have a lot of folks that were in the solar industry that work with us now because I think they realized 
solar was a huge is a huge part of how we're going to get the grid to zero carbon. And there's been so much success there and we're continuing, we have to continue to, to grow there and work there. But I think they're also realizing, okay, we have to now get this other piece of the puzzle to help support it and continue to grow so that we have a fully dispatchable and robust resilient grid. And so our system, the way that we, we enable more solar is by turning on and off when there's cloudy days or when it's, when it's dark. And so we can ramp up and down, turn on and off. And I think that's sort of at the base of it, but then we're big believers in the ability to create fuels like hydrogen during periods of excess solar. And I know we're, we're not there yet. We don't have excess solar. We just use the solar that we have, but as we continue to build, there's a lot of seasonality differences and a lot of, and geographical differences in what resources are available. And so you can use excess solar and wind to create fuels like hydrogen when you have excess and then store it for months, weeks, and move it around as needed to then use when you don't have that resource available. And like I said, different geographies, different locations, different times of year, you're going to need more or less storage. And so this really allows you to enable a more robust and resilient grid. And what's novel about the linear generator technology compared with a reciprocating engine in particular is the way that you've been able to integrate in the way that a reciprocating engine or ICE engine for a vehicle uh, has certain mechanical limitations that an electric vehicle doesn't have because software can now control things at a more uh, intricate level. The linear generator you've created actually allows the harnessing of software in a way that traditional reciprocating engines couldn't. Could you expound a bit on that? Because I feel like that is part and parcel to the dispatchability, the ability to ramp up, ramp down in effect with what it on, on the surface looks like an engine that can operate in the way that a battery might. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, engines can, can dispatch and load track, but they cannot switch fuels effectively without a pretty serious hardware change. Similar with a fuel cell, you, you're mm-hmm. reliant on a catalytic surface. And so what our system does is because, like you said, we're software enabled, we can switch between different fuels readily and with that software adjust to run on hydrogen, run on ammonia, run on biogas, run on mixtures of those. And that really gives a lot of robustness for a customer who isn't necessarily sure, you know, maybe they start with biogas and then shift to hydrogen over time or shift to ammonia over time. And this gives them the robustness to know that they don't have a stranded asset, that they're not stuck with something that is only going to be able to run on one type of fuel. That's really interesting. When you think about the fact that historically, if like, let's put it in perspective for like a Kroger, which was your first client. Historically, the way that you would firm up power, the way that you would have backup power is a traditional generator, an Ingersoll Rand or a GE that is sitting in the parking lot or behind the building and is connected for the most part to uh, either a diesel tank or a propane tank or directly to a natural gas fuel line, right? And so thereby locked into, we'll call it one singular fuel supply and the quality constraints of that fuel supply. Is that accurate? That's correct. So this just opens up that opportunity. You don't have to be stuck with one type of fuel. Amazing. And, you know, one very notable example of someone who has beyond uh, Kroger, who has bought into the technology as NextEra. It's one of the largest providers of solar and wind in the world. Can you provide a little more detail about how the $150 million deal came around last year and, and helped support the expansion and, and commercialization of Mainspring? 
Yeah, our Series C investor uh, had strong ties to Nextera when they invested. And so they introduced us to Nextera as part of the diligence process for their funding. And so both on the business side and the technology side. So they did a lot of diligence. And so after the funding was done, we actually reached reached back out and re-engaged with their business team and started looking at opportunities to work together. And so that resulted in this very unique deal where Nextera can buy our units Uh, They offer then an energy service agreement to a customer. So similar to a a PPA in in solar, then the customer doesn't have to buy the asset. Nextera owns and operates the asset, just like they've been doing with solar and wind. And it's very unique for a startup at our size to have that kind of financing in place going into the, you know, as we entered the market. And that's, uh, we're, we're really appreciative of that relationship and that partnership. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Not only does it provide a necessary lever of financing, which allows your prospective customers to not have to put their own capital out on a relatively untested technology in the marketplace, but to have someone like Nextera back you is validation that just about any startup would opine for in the marketplace. So kudos on the ability to earn Nextera's trust at that level of commercialization. And I'm sure that, you know, having worked a lot with Nextera, they as well are very stringent on their due diligence and uh, I'd say protective of their customer base. So for them to, I'd say, vouch for the mainspring technology to the tune of a $150 million deal speaks volumes for where you're at, even at a Series C, you know, two rounds ago uh, in terms of product commercialization. That's huge. We mentioned at the outset, but I'd like to dig a little deeper because of the kind of client that it represents. That another key commercial partnership that underscored the Series E was an announcement with Lineage Logistics. They're the largest cold storage company in the world, as many may know. Last fall, you had a huge announcement of commercial deployment with Lineage. And in May of this year, they came back again to deploy up to 150 more units. Could you talk about that arrangement? And in particular, why is this product a good fit for a customer like cold storage? Is there something specific that they are looking for? Does it differentiate in any way from Kroger or just an extension of that, uh, of that CNI customer base? Could you talk a bit about the way that deal came around? Yeah, I think they are an extension of similar to Kroger. They have, you know, 400 sites globally, they're growing. They have a ton of power needs because they have massive refrigeration uh, mm-hmm. facilities. And so they, they need a lot of power. They have a net zero carbon commitment by 2040. They've put solar on every roof um, and they have you know, I think the, our first installation, they had a three megawatt solar installation on the roof, which is a huge, huge solar installation wow, yeah. for a rooftop, but they need something to firm that solar. They want to be less dependent on the grid because electricity prices really dominate their, um, dominate a lot of their expenses. And so we can firm the solar, we can help, um, you know, we actually turn off in the middle of the day because their solar is enough to power their facility. And, and so we are off in the middle of the day, we turn on whenever uh, there's cloudy days or whenever the sun sets and run run during the evenings and support their support their solar. And then, you know, ultimately they want to transition to zero carbon fuel so that they are 100% zero carbon, meeting that net zero carbon target by 2040. You know, Shannon, one thing is to come up with a product and have product market fit, develop software that expands the product's uh, capacity in the marketplace to do interesting things. Another is to find client like Kroger and Lineage to validate the hypothesis and the product market fit. And 
Yet now you find yourself at an interesting time in the clean energy transition where I would argue when you started the company and even up to three, four years ago, the concept of hydrogen and uh, hard to abate fuel systems like ammonia and steel and industries that wanted to decarbonize, that wasn't a part of the lore of, of commercialization. It was very theoretical and even possible and probable, but not something that was a pull through from the marketplace. Yet, some part, probably the, in my view, the biggest news that I've seen come from Mainspring turned to certainly a lot of heads in clean energy media this spring was your announcement of being the first generator to directly run both hydrogen and ammonia in addition to biogas. I'd like to ask a couple of questions around this. The first is perhaps related to the thesis of here's what we can do for you and Kroger and Lineage. You've now bought into it and you're buying units. At what point is the hydrogen, ammonia, the actual fuel switching narrative at what point does it turn into a pull through from the marketplace, i.e. they're asking you for things that you think are possible versus you suggesting to the marketplace, we think this is what you need. Can you talk a bit about that as, as it relates to this, to the announcement that you had of being the first ever to directly run hydrogen ammonia? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both because we have some customers that are really leading the charge and have made very public net zero commitments and have no alternative. You know, they're looking at ways to get there and they're sort of realizing there's no way we can do this without some new technologies. And so they're coming to us saying, please get us a hydrogen or ammonia generator because we don't have any other options. But then there's other customers who are sort of saying, well, when, when am I going to have hydrogen? I don't know how long that infrastructure is going to take, you know, how, you know, they're not, um, it's not part of their business. And so they're not, uh, they don't have a team going out to, to figure out how to build that infrastructure. And so for them, that ability to switch and that flexibility is really valuable because they're saying, well, maybe, maybe things will change and I don't want to be left in the dust, but I also don't know how to get it myself. And so we're, we're saying, you're going to want this. Whereas there's some customers who are saying we need it now and we're trying to drive this change. And so I think we've seen the full spectrum of customers. And for us, you know, it's just, you know, things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which now have incentives to drive that transition faster is just so exciting because, you know, our mission has always been around reducing carbon, has always been about adding resiliency and firming firming renewables. And so to have this kind of acceleration is just really, really exciting to see. Are there sectors that you are beginning to see, so I'll say unfold before you from a commercial perspective that validate the thesis or that expand on? Which do you see that more folks coming to you that you always thought would or folks that are coming to you now that surprise you and give you courage, even as a, you know, at the Series E level that say, suggest, oh, we have folks coming to us that we didn't think were going to come for another two or three, four years? Yeah, data centers is a really good example of that where we didn't have data centers on our map for for the first few years because we were really looking at the commercial and industrial space but right. they're one of the the biggest groups that has made public commitments to zero carbon and they're really limited by their diesel generators that's the only solution they have right now for providing on-site resilience and something like ammonia on site or um you know hydrogen ammonia but particularly ammonia is very compelling and very interesting and there there really aren't other solutions to get that resiliency with zero carbon. So 
that's a place where we're, we were not expecting and are very excited about the the interest. I'm completely unaware of why a data center would have ammonia on site. Can, can you help me with that as an engineer? They, they don't have ammonia on site right now. Okay. Uh, they have diesel on site. And so they are looking for ways to have some sort of on-site energy storage that doesn't take up a huge amount of space that can last for the amount of time that they need. They all have different criteria for how much power they want to have on site to provide resilience. Right. And hydrogen is is great. The one, as many as many folks know, the energy density of hydrogen is not as high as you would like compared to things like liquid fuels or or natural gas. And so having things like ammonia, which is takes up about a third of the volume for the same energy that hydrogen does is a is something that could could really really help them. Hey sunshine, clouds got you down? It doesn't have to be that way. Leading solar enterprises around the world are making the most of their investments in sunshine with Solar Anywhere, the data and intelligence service from Clean Power Research. Whether you're designing or operating solar assets, Solar Anywhere helps you reduce project risk and improve performance benchmarking. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Shannon, I'd like to pause on the techno-economic explanations of the technology for a minute and back out again to kind of 30,000 feet. One of the things that I traditionally do at the very beginning of the interview is try to understand a bit more about sort of the making of the person and how you arrived at the place that you're at now. Everyone has their own different story. It always, in my opinion, starts at a very young age. So I'd like to learn a bit more about you as a person, if, if you will. Could you tell me, what was the conversation like for you as a young person around the dinner table? Could you use that opportunity to also explain kind of how big of a nuclear family you had and whether or not it was particularly an entrepreneurial focused family? Kind of how, what was the environment you grew up in? My family is fantastic. I, my parents and my brother were the sort of nuclear family that I grew up with and they're just amazing, wonderful, supportive people that I just won the lottery uh, with where, where and how I grew up, you know, and I think 
I was not an entrepreneurial kid. You know, my husband was like starting companies when he was age seven, you know, it was like a different, I I was not doing that. Um, but my grandfather was, uh, an entrepreneur and I think he was one of my early heroes. And so, you know, he's the, you know, grew up in a farm in Ohio, Ohio, went to fight in world war II, came back and put himself through college and started a company and, you know, helped found a company and grew it. So he was definitely, you know, an idol from an early age. And I'm sure that influenced my path. I know that you grew up uh, sort of in and around Boston. Could you tell me a bit about the influence of your parents? What sort of work did they do? I'm curious if there were any early signs towards either strong leadership qualities or entrepreneurial tendencies that may have stemmed from the work that your folks did or how they encouraged you. I mean, my parents were both very supportive and very much of the mindset you can do, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm and achieve whatever you want. Uh, and so, you know, I think my mom went back to school when I was 16 and re, uh, you know, re-entered the workforce, which I think is always, um, you know, looking back on it now it is, uh, I have a lot, a lot of respect for that. Um, and my dad was, was a manager, uh, running, you know, he did a lot of different things in the hotel industry. And so he did, you know, sales and marketing and, and general management. And so I think just realizing how important a team is, to building a company is building and, and executing is really critical. Yeah. Both of them were, were influential. Well, what I'm not hearing is uh, even with your grandfather, a farmer turned entrepreneur, uh, history in the family of engineering. So I know you initially went to Stanford focused on chemistry and switched to engineering. I'm curious, uh, what precipitated that desire to go to the opposite coast and, and focus on a practice or a tech, uh, sort of a technical interest that wasn't something you kind of grew up around. Yeah. I think chemistry, I've really, really loved it in high school. And as when you get to college, it's pure memorization. And mm. so there's not a lot of understanding of where it could go and what you could use it for. And I'm sure that, you know, if I'd stuck it out, maybe the later year classes were, were maybe would help you see that. But in the early, in the I think the beginning, it's really more of a weed out for pre-meds. And so it just mm-hmm. is straight up memorization and it was fine, but it was not, I was not finding any kind of passion around it. Uh, and so, um, I took at the advice of, um, my, uh, RA in my, in my dorm, my freshman RA mm. advice to take a, uh, engineering class in a sophomore year, which was thermodynamics. And actually that was taught by Chris Edwards, who later became my PhD advisor. And it was, uh, it was just, so mind blowing because I learned how everything around me worked, refrigerators, car engines, you know, the basics of the world around you. And I just realized this was actually fascinating and something I wanted to continue to continue working on. I wonder, have you ever had a chance to re-engage with that RA? Have you kept in touch? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's wonderful. And he's, he was super helpful in saying, maybe you should try he's actually a chemical engineer and he's like, you should just take the first intro class for thermodynamics. Cause it's, if you like this, you'll probably like engineering. What a powerful nudge as a sophomore for you to receive, to go check something new. I changed, actually, I changed my major from engineering to business because of a similar nudge from uh, not an RA, but someone in a sort of similar role in college. And it's, it always, I reflect on how powerful it is in our sort of late teens, early twenties to have someone like that, who's willing and courageous enough to challenge the path that we're on. You know, I find that far too often people in their thirties and forties 
don't heed the call uh, the way that your mother did to step out and challenge themselves to do something different. I find that right now, as we enter into a period where we need more, we need a call to arms, folks, more and more folks on the front lines here fighting climate change, that we need more folks like your mother, folks like yourself and like that RA who challenge folks to say, wait, maybe the career path I have chosen is not is not the one that's going to leave a legacy. It's not the one that's even going to make me happy. So among those early catalysts in your career, Shannon, was this person named Chris Edwards. Uh, ultimately, he was the professor who had an enduring impact on the direction of your career. I'd love you to expound on the ongoing impact that Chris Edwards has had on you and the ultimate direction that you've taken. Yeah, I think words probably do not capture how much <laughs> gratitude I feel for uh, for what he's given both me and and I know my co-founders feel similarly. We're often, you know, it's it's he actually just announced his retirement and many of his mm. former students got back together and it was just so inspiring to see how many of us all felt this just immense deep gratitude for what he's given us and you know, I think he instilled a passion for energy, a passion for learning and a deep deep respect for first principles thinking and I think that has just inspired so many folks in the field of energy. And, you know, he's definitely one of my heroes, one of my mentors. And I know so many other people feel, feel the same way. And for those who missed it, Chris is the professor who taught that thermodynamics class and went on to be an advisor in many, uh, in many different ways. We'll talk about them in a moment. You know, I had initially really misunderstood your career path. For some reason, I thought that you basically incubated the idea. You sort of was all, were always at Stanford. This was your first job out of Stanford was starting Mainspring, but that actually isn't accurate. Your first job was at Tesla. I'd love to hear about your decision to go work at Tesla straight out of school. What were you working on there? What did you hope to learn there? And how long was the tenure? Yeah, so I was there less than a year. So it was not not long. And it was right after my PhD. So you know, Matt ah, and I had started talking. Yeah, I, I worked uh, somewhere else after my undergrad. So I have, I've worked a few a few different places. Uh, but Matt... Matt and I had started talking about the idea of starting a company and, and we had met Adam and started thinking, oh, this is something that is really powerful. We should really try to think about how to, how do we continue this work? But they, you know, Matt and Adam were still finishing their PhDs. And so we, we didn't know, we had no idea if we could get funding or what it would look like to even start a company. It was very early stages. So we didn't think that was really going to happen. And I thought I should probably get a job. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Tesla was a really exciting opportunity. This was, I think when I was there, they, they IPO, the Roadster was out. Wow. We were working on the Model S. Um, it was a super fun, fun time to be there. Um, and I was working on powertrain cooling. So it was a combination of modeling, hardware, testing, design. And so it was just a really fantastic opportunity to see, yeah. see the company working at a really, really exciting growth time. Yet you stayed for less than a year. What was the catalyst for pulling you back to the idea that you'd begun to nurture during your PhD with Matt and Adam and Chris as your advisor. Yeah. So Adam had actually been doing diligence for Coastal Ventures as part of his, you know, Chris gets called all the time by investors to do help them do diligence on new companies. And he typically wants nothing to do with it. So he, uh, he's, he's gave, uh, you know, would connect them with, with some of his, um, graduate students who are very excited to help, um, right. and could, could do the analysis. And so Adam was doing that for COSLA and had done, had looked at a number of their companies and helped do the sort of first principles thermo thermodynamics to understand, Hey, does this 
technology makes sense. So they they had asked him, hey, you know, what ideas do you see out there that are interesting and compelling? And he said, well, one of the ideas came, you know, this this idea from my lab is interesting. So we sat down with Samir and looked at it. And, and I think that was the moment where they said, hey, you know, why don't you distributed generation was starting uh, power generation was yeah. was, you know, solar was really starting to ramp ramp up net energy metering was starting to be starting to be clear that that was really powerful. And so we were, you know, they, they said, we should start the company. I said, why don't you give me more time at Tesla, (laughs) which is very funny in hindsight. And they were like, you can't wait. The market is moving. You know, you have to sprint guys. And so, um, we started sprinting (laughs) early. Yeah. Early life lesson that when the opportunity appears, you got to seize it. You got to take it. Exactly. So Adam and Matt, are your co-founders. You all met in the PhD program under Chris? Yes. I heard you in a previous interview state that you got grants to test test concepts behind some of the work that was happening in the lab at the time. This is obviously a nod to the conversation that uh, Adam ultimately had with Kozla. What was it that you originally were testing in that lab that initially sparked the idea that became a linear generator? Yeah, so linear generators work by compressing the fuel and air that creates the reaction that then expands and drives that electricity production. And so the reason that linear generators have high efficiency is because that we span that reaction as much as possible. And so it's, you know, it's really clear in theory that that's how it will work, but we wanted to test the idea in practice to make sure that if you actually did go to high, high expansion, that you could get high efficiency. And so that's what we were proving in, uh, in Chris's lab and, we weren't making electricity at the time. We were just expanding, <laughs> expanding that reaction further and seeing if we could get higher efficiency, which we did. We did show. What is the reaction that you're expanding? Uh, I want to make sure I understand it. Oh, it's the the fuel in the air. Uh huh. Okay. Because what you're doing is you're taking the the energy that's in the molecules of the fuel and converting that into electricity, and so that reaction is what allows you to get access to that energy, and then expanding it is what converts it into. Uh, into electricity. Got it. And when you say that you weren't yet generating electricity, you weren't yet creating a a way to capture the electricity generated in that reaction. That's right. That's right. We weren't making electrical current. We were just pushing, (laughs) pushing those oscillators around. Yeah. And you have said, I remember uh, in particular in, uh, I think it was the announcement with NextEra last year, it gave a nod to sort of the electric vehicle industry and the solar inverter industry. That, that you all began to sort of, thanks to, I would say, standing on the shoulders of the technological advances of those two industries, you were able to harness new technology to this linear generator concept. Could you talk a bit about the the matching of those ideas and how that ultimately allowed you to harness the electricity? Yeah. So the thing that we use is basically the power electronics. Power electronics are, you could think of them as just switches that control, allow you to precisely control electrical current. And so people had actually looked at some of the ideas in a linear generator in the fifties and couldn't make it work because they didn't have the power electronics. And so the power electronics let, let you control the current in those copper coils, which controls the force on the magnets, which controls the position of those oscillators really precisely. And so it's that control, uh, that really allows us to switch fuels, dispatch, have high efficiency. All of the features that we have are really 
enabled by those power electronics. And those power electronics are the same thing that are used in solar inverters and EVs for driving the wheels of the car and for, you know, converting the energy from the battery into, into motion. And then, uh, in wind, wind inverters as well. Is it fair to say that this technology of the power electronics in particular that you harness now was already in existence when you started Mainspring or has it still evolved and allowed Mainspring to evolve in, in much the same way? It's been continuing to evolve. So it was not even available, you know, 20 years ago. It's become more and more available and it's continued to improve and accelerate. And so, um, and you can see that in a lot of different companies that are continuing to evolve that. And we, we've been able to continue to grow as well. It's mind altering to conceptualize the process of founding a company on an idea, spinning it out, which we'll talk about in a minute, which itself is a whole other ball of wax, a decade of growth, all while essentially hoping that not only the technology you've created materializes, but that the enabling technology continues to increase at the speed that you anticipated, that you forecast it would. <laughs> I mean, it's, th- it's four-dimensional chess yes. at, its, at its simplest way of conceptualizing it. One element of that chess that is not insignificant, and I think that doesn't get explored often in these conversations, is you effectively incubated this idea inside of an academic institution. And I've talked about this a bit in a past interview that I'd encourage folks to listen to as well, Nick Ingerer, who spun his technology out of a, techn- of a, of a university down in Australia, and it was a great conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Help us understand the hurdles inherent in spinning out an idea into a business, a research project, essentially, from a major institution like Stanford that then becomes a product and a business model that you can raise funding for. Yeah, we were, we were very lucky to have early support from Coastal Ventures. So I think, you know, having, having that capital at the beginning is extremely valuable because that allows you to then focus on the hardest technical challenges and the hardest market challenges. But as you mentioned, the the research was really an academic research project when we left and we, you know, published our theses. We went to, you know, we looked at patents and we said, this is all just basic academic research. There's nothing to patent. Uh, we're going to, we're going to publish all this and then we're going to move on to start the company. Uh, and so we had to do a ton of work to understand the markets, customer discovery process, make sure we understand what customers really wanted, you know, in, in academic environments, you're often publishing something that's really interesting technically, but it may not be interesting for the market. And so you have to really then go understand what does the customer want? Can we build that? What's the price point? What does it need to look like? Can the technology actually deliver that? So there was a huge amount of work, both on the technology side and on the market side to build a product that people would want. One of the things that for me stands out as a differentiator and makes it a, not just a, a, elegant hybrid machine, but also accurately stated a bridge between in the clean energy energy transition um, for for lower carbon and and no carbon or nearly no carbon power generation is the way that the reaction functions to effectively prevent NOx. I'd love if you could talk a bit about this. I think a key element, why is keeping the, the notion of keeping the reaction cool enough in the process important for diminishing the overall amount of greenhouse gases that might be generated, even when using traditional fossil fuels in your generator? 
So NOx, uh, NOx forms from when you have a nitrogen molecule, which is two nitri- nitrogen atoms stuck together. And if you go above a certain temperature, those nitrogens separate and then react with oxygen and you get NOx essentially. Yeah. And so if you keep the temperature below a certain threshold, then you don't take those nitrogens apart. And so you can prevent any of the, um, mm. the nitrous oxides from forming. And if you have a flame, you can't avoid it. The temperature will go up and you will have, uh, you will have the, that formation. And so by keeping the temperature much lower, we prevent those NOx, Got it. NOx molecules from forming. And just to belabor the point for those who maybe didn't catch the answer here, why or how was that heretofore difficult to control or manage prior to your linear electromagnetic machine? Yeah. So we control that reaction by controlling the position of the oscillators really precisely. Mm -hmm. And so it goes back to those power electronics and back to the ability to control the position, the 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 current in the, uh, in the coils and the position of those oscillators super precisely with our software. And that's what allows us to control the, the reaction timing and keep the temperatures low. So it all comes back to that software and the, and the power electronics. I definitely feel like I've got a better understanding now as an as a non-engineer of how this technology works. Back to the commercial side where I spent most of my career, I'd love to know when did it become clear that energy managers, particularly of big box retail outlets, grocery stores like Kroger and the like, would be the most likely beneficiaries and subsequently the most helpful in providing feedback on the product roadmap. How did that unfold for you? Ultimately, how'd that lead to Kroger as your first customer? Yes, we had some early advisors that really helped us pull together, you know, we had a customer discovery slide deck. We would go mm. try to get meetings with anyone that would take them to get input on what we were building and what they wanted to see. And a lot mm. of the energy managers, we were grateful to have their time and and their feedback. And some mm. of them ended up, you know, giving us a lot of really good input and becoming champions down the road. And so folks at Kroger were, were some of those folks that really helped us understand, you know, influence what we were building and then also became, became supporters. Mm. The fabled sort of moment of market acceptance known as product market fit is often the crux of whether or not a company succeeds, whether they can move to commercialization. How, or when did you know that you'd finally achieved product market fit? What did that look like? How did it feel? How did you know as the CEO, like, okay, we're, we're there. I think you know, getting follow on orders is a really helpful moment when you, you deliver your first units and then you get, you get follow on orders from customers. That's a huge, you know, huge validation. Of course, we have tons more to do and tons more growth, but, uh, but having, having those early customers continue to work with us, continue to give us feedback and one additional units is, is extremely helpful in validating. And who helped you get there? Oh, is a, uh, it was the team for sure. And, and those early customers, mm. I'd say, you know, they were are you able to talk visionary. about who they are. I know sometimes it's not, I'm curious. There's, there's kind of two sides to it. There's the customers helping with the following orders, but then there might even be investors or outside advisors. Uh, what, what did that, what did that crucible look like for you as you're crossing that, that valley of pro, of known as product market fit? Yeah. So it is definitely, you know, definitely early advisors who mm-hmm. had done product management before and had a process going through that because it's something they don't teach in school very well product product management it's not which is i think maybe maybe it's happening more and more now but it's not something that is often i think stanford has a need fighting and and product design program which is i think one of the few places where i've 
I've seen it, but going through that process of going to customers, really trying to keep open-minded, you know, asking a lot of questions, getting that feedback, and then continuing to, to build a relationship with them, go back with updates, continue to get feedback, and then figure out ways to get them early units so that they can then, you know, hopefully if you're doing, doing everything right, do follow on orders. It's easy for us looking back on 530 million raised and market validation from the likes of Lineage and Kroger and NextEra to think, wow, these guys just went from success to success. But that's not how entrepreneurship works. Were there moments where you thought this product is doomed or it's just not going to work? Or did we build the company with the right team? Can you talk a bit about some of those less certain moments? We definitely had some, you know, I think one that one that sticks out very clearly is that one of our early seal designs, you know, we'd, we had tested it at a smaller scale. We scaled it up. It did not work. Mm. It was really clear when we scaled it up, it did not work. And, you know, if we'd kept trying to, we, we were just fortunate to have a, you know, very creative and very perseverant team to, to help push through that and find a new solution that works, worked better. But mm. it was definitely a moment where we said, huh, this may not, this may not work. Was that a crux moment where like, if it doesn't work, it, it may well mean that this machine doesn't work? Oh yeah. It was mm. very existential. <laughs> <laughs> What's the conversation with your, uh, with your entrepreneurial husband at that moment where you're thinking that we may have just spent all this money and not be where we thought we'd be? Yeah. Well, it was, and it was also my, with my co-founders yeah. too. It was like, all right, we are, we are in trouble here, but you know, I think this is where, you know, one of our core values is called pragmatic optimism. And it really, um, I, I'd say my co-founders have it more, more than I do (laughs) is this idea of continuing to look at the problem in different ways and continuing to say, well, I call it a can, if attitude, I can solve this, if these things are true, or if I think about it, you know, if we change it, it change these things, then we can make this happen. And if you think about it in different ways and you sort of force yourself to look at the problem from different angles, the initial ideas might sound crazy, but then as you start to work them and think through them, you're like, well, actually this isn't that crazy. Maybe we could do this. And you, if you keep your mind open to those, those maybe sometimes wacky ideas. You can often find a path that you may maybe didn't think was viable before. Yeah. Well said, you know, one of the paths that heretofore has not been viable was this whole idea of uh, being fuel agnostic. I think that it's fair to say, especially you guys are seeing it prove out now in the last uh, one or two years that you're making a big bet on clean fuels being there for customers, right? That that the hydrogen hub concept is going to come to fruition, that our friend Rob is going gonna, is gonna to scale his technology and so is Rafi and so many other uh, electrolysis companies or pyrolysis companies, but that the hydrogen economy as one potential fuel is going to materialize. Is that a risk for your company still at this point? I think for most of our customers, my belief is it's, it's, it's not if, but when, and really the transition has to happen to get us fully to zero carbon and to have a resilient, resilient grid. And so I, I look at it as our systems help people accelerate that because if you had a system that couldn't run on those other fuels, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of the opportunities when they came along. And you, you know, many of our customers, I guess some of them are driving and, and getting, getting that, uh, getting those fuels faster. And some 
aren't sure how they're going to get those fuels. But just by simply having something that is able to use those different fuels, they can move more quickly. And so I see us as being able to enable that transition to happen faster than it would otherwise. One fascinating uh, way that you've done that, and it's something that has been, I'll say a bugger, it's been real hard problem for folks to really um, tap into is the whole idea of, uh, of biogas. You just announced, uh, I mean, so many amazing announcements coming out of your company right now, your head must be spinning, but you've just announced this um, landfill project in Yolo County, California. The scope of the problem is is really quite large globally. And the fuel flexibility of the generator that you've created makes it ideal for generating renewable electricity with biogas, which I'd love for you to unpack why biogas has been so hard up to now to harness. Yeah, I think the fact that it's often very distributed, it's not all in one place. There's different kinds of biogas. So there's landfill, there's wastewater treatment, there's dairies, all of those fuels look different. And so you know, often the problem has a lot of, there's a lot of uniqueness to each of those, each of those sites and each of those projects that can make it hard to go tackle as a larger, you know, with one solution. And so I think having a distributed fuel flexible solution really allows us to help that industry in a way that other technologies haven't been able to do before. Seems like, and I don't want to overstretch here, um, but it seems like the linear generator from Mainspring becomes sort of a silver bullet for that particular segment of the market, at least biogas and landfill gas. Is that accurate? We think so. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm looking at, you know, it's been a problem uh, that just generally us in the renewable energy sector have opined around and the ability to harness biogas, not just from landfills, but as you said, from dairies here in North Carolina, from pig farms, right? The biodigesters don't always produce the same quality of fuel, which is why there isn't a big pipe fuel pipeline coming out of North Carolina <laughs> of biodigested right. methane. Um, so it is, uh, for me, it was really exciting to see the announcement from Yolo County. Um, you know, you've got, uh, it would take us too long to continue to go through all the different uh, announcements, but the microgrid from Napa, the Yolo County project example, you truly have positioned yourself to be a, a nearly perfect complement, in my opinion, to a major corporate buyer's strategy for bridging to renewables and figuring out how to firm renewables without needing to buy, frankly, huge battery packs and and the the, the technological risk in, inherent in that as well. You know, I think one of the things that I'm really proud of our team around is being able to go talk to all of those different sub-segments within bio, the biogas market and understand the specific needs of those different groups and try to make sure that our product can deliver for them what they need. So like you said, wastewater treatment is different than biogas at a dairy that that is different from a landfill. And so really a testament to the team that's doing a little bit of product management and a little bit of business development and a little bit of sales all together to really try to make sure that we can deliver a product that adds value to those customers. You mentioned team. And I think one of the things that is a homegrown video that I found of your, I think it maybe even is your corporate video at, at present on your website and we'll post it on our um, blog page. You seem to have a team that just really enjoys what they're doing. And I'm curious, how do you think about building a culture of continuous innovation? In particular, one that allows your team to routinely say, I'm having fun. I'm encouraged to become better at my job through working at Mainspring. Well, it probably starts with, starts with hiring and the team and finding people that have that 
philosophy to begin with. And I think the, you know, we put our core values on the website, we talk about them, we interview for them, we, they're a big part of, you know, how we operate. And so we hope, hopefully attract folks that have that same philosophy. And so then it, you know, continues, continues as you go and as, as you grow. Can you speak to a couple of those core values? I'm curious, what are the hallmarks of a company culture that underpin the way that these employees clearly emanate their feelings for the company? Yeah. So the first one, as I mentioned, is pragmatic optimism. And that really, I think, came largely from our, you know, at the root from our advisor, from Chris Edwards at Stanford. But then I, like I said, I see it really embodied in my, my two, two co-founders. Uh, the second is proactive collaboration. So this idea that we have, you know, when you start, you have a pretty complex system, just even the core technology, there's yeah. electrical and there's software and there's mechanical and all of those have to talk together and optimizing one, uh, maybe, at, you know, if you, if you just optimize for yourself as the software or the electrical engineer, you might make the mechanical, mechanical part harder, or you make, make, you know, it harder to assemble or to produce or to manufacture right. or make, make it cost more. And that starts to expand out from the technology to everything in the company. And so proactive collaboration is really around making sure that we're communicating our ideas, really have a high level of transparency so that we're ultimately creating the best product and really satisfying the customer. And then the third one is uh, excellence without ego. And so this is really around trying to always be improving, always be striving for excellence and to have the sort of humility to get the feedback, to know that you can always be doing better. Well, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to challenge you here in a moment around excellence without ego. I think it's something that you do exemplify. It's probably one of the ones, as you said, the proactive uh, or pragmatic optimism your your co-founders embody. Uh, another accolade and one that I believe also points to the kind of corporate culture that you wish to build upon is that you were very recently selected as one of the U.S. Department of Energy's nine recipients for the Clean Energy Education and Empowerment, or C3E, awards. Congratulations, by the way. That's amazing. The C3E award winners are creating scientific breakthroughs, this is from the website, increasing energy access, boosting community resilience, improving systems, and investing in groundbreaking technologies that will facilitate the clean energy transition. We've actually had past entrepreneurship and business winner Steph Spears and Meg Nutting here on the show this year as well. And the award is meant to advance women's leadership in the energy transition. I'd love to hear uh, here in the in the waning moments of our interview, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on words of advice, in particular for other women, young women who wish to pursue a career in climate tech or clean energy. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wary of giving advice because I know that everybody's situation is different. Um, but I would say that, you know, I think this passion is really important, but, um, I think the adage that, you know, if you're passionate about what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, maybe, maybe a little too far and that there will be hard days and the passion will get you through it. (laughs) Uh, and so knowing, you know, knowing, expecting that it's not always going to be easy, maybe, maybe a good way to go into things. Um, at least that helps me. Um, and then the second is maybe, you know, as you're choosing companies, you know, and you're focused on climate, look also for things like core values, because, Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully and an interview for that when you, when you're interviewing at a company and hopefully you can find a place where you find, you find that match. Yeah. I'm going to modify slightly sort of rephrase a little bit what you just said, because I think it's a really important point to enunciate. And that is when you are choosing companies, so many young people believe falsely, in my opinion, that they are being selected. But 
it is in many ways a buyer's market right now for anyone looking for a job in climate tech. And while there's a structure for interview that Shannon and her team are going through, in many ways, each and every applicant is in fact interviewing the company. And, and that's the mindset shift that I hope for folks that they can harness, right? Exactly. Because, yeah. Like, cause you said interview good for those qualities that you're looking yeah. for. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You should come with questions and you should be looking for exactly the, the fit that you want. I love that. Was there any advice early on that you feel served as foundational insight? In hindsight, you look back and think, man, this really ensured the success so far of the company. We, we talked a lot about pragmatic optimism already. I think that's been one of the key, key drivers. Mm-hmm. The other one that you know, comes to mind is um, you know, Vinod and Samir, when we were starting, told us at, at Kosla, told us, you know, tackle the highest risk and the hardest problems first, because, uh-huh. you know, what you don't want to do is, I mean, there's money at stake, but there's also your life at stake and right. time, like you said at the beginning is your most important and the only non-renewable asset. And so if you don't want to waste a bunch of time doing the easy things and then find out that you've had a roadblock that stops, that makes the the business a non-starter. And so they always recommended, you know, and pushed really hard to say, what's the hardest, highest risk thing in the company? Make sure you do that first and tackle that first before anything else. That's brilliant. I love that. I've got a few things I want to kind of quickly click through as we, as we count down the moments here in the interview. Sure. What do you nerd out about when you're not thinking about energy systems? <laughs> I spend a lot of time on energy. Um, <laughs> I'd say, you know, the other things I like to read about are things related to history or, you mm-hmm. know, biology is actually really fascinating too. reading about books like Live Wire or about the immune system or about, mm. you know, I think uh, Alchemy of Error is one of my favorite books. It's a history of um, the history of actually ammonia production, uh, which is in the in the it was during World War One and World War Two wow. in Germany. And so the overlay of history and science and engineering development is just unbelievably fascinating. Mm. The Alchemy of Air. I've never heard of that book. I'm definitely going to look that up. It is It is uh, one of my favorites. Wow. Fascinating. Well, similarly, I, I love asking for book recommendations. Thank you for the first one out of the gate here. <laughs> well, is there another book that you have either recommended or gifted the most or that had a particular influence to shape how you think about business? I think, you know... This is probably overplayed, but thinking fast and slow is probably uh, still just one of my favorites in terms yeah. of helping understand your own your own psychology, the people around you, and businesses are ultimately about how people work people work together. Yeah, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Well, I believe that habits uh, help us make it through the day, especially those of us like myself with ADHD. I'm curious if you have a habit or consistent practice that has for you given the greatest leverage or yield in your life and, and helps you show up better as a, as a CEO, even as a partner. Yeah, I, um, I have been consistently running, you know, more or less for, for many years. And I, mm. I tell people that I run for other people, not for myself, because I'm a better person, <laughs> better person when I've been running. I think it clears my head. It, it really is a really powerful way of just helping me manage stress and, and get through the day. Is there a time that you like to run? I do in the morning so that I make sure it gets in before the day starts. So mm. if you wait, it will uh, inevitably get pushed. And so I try really hard to do it in the morning. At some point, I hope to 
be able to show up early in Menlo Park and, and go on a run with you. I think that would be fascinating. I too love a run and it's probably the most common answer to that question, which is why I don't feel like it's a trope. I do feel like it is, in fact, a very uh, formal, useful, and even crucial tool in our, in our toolkit. Where do you like to be found? I know that you often don't like to be found, but where, where, where can folks, if they wanted to try and connect with you or follow along uh, on your journey, how, how, would they, how would you encourage them to do that? I think uh, LinkedIn is probably probably the best way. And I'm not, like you said, the fastest person to get back, but I do, I will, uh, I will, I will, that's probably the best way to get, get yeah. a hold of me. Well, Shannon, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm grateful for the, the depth of insight, the candor. I think the beautiful relationship that you formed with your co-creators, your partners, your co-founders, and in scaling something and making it, I mean, honestly, on the outside, making it look relatively easy. I know that a decade is what it often takes to be that 10-year overnight success. So kudos for for arriving at least at this stage of entrepreneurship that many of us uh, applaud you for. I'd love to know as you sort of look out over the next uh, three to five to, to 10 years, or, or really as we look out even to 2050, what do you believe is the linchpin problem that we are going to solve to get us to a decarbonized grid by 2050? I mean, what's holding us back? What's in your crystal ball? Well, we, we touched on it a little bit already, but I, I really think clean fuels and solving that infrastructure are gonna, is going to be the linchpin to mm. helping us get to net zero, but also decarbonize a lot of those other industries that we, uh, we haven't talked, talked about today, but mm-hmm. agriculture and, and, you know, steel and in concrete, all these other areas. So, uh, I think, and I, I also really strongly believe that a diversity of power is really critical to having a robust and economic, uh, solution. And, you know, the signs are, are there, we're moving. The inflation reduction act is a huge, huge win. There's a lot, um, in uh, in Europe as well around green green hydrogen and mm-hmm. continuing to push that and so I think the the early steps are there and I I've, I think we're we're headed in the right direction headed in the right direction it does seem like we are and with technologies like Mainspring we uh, are able to accelerate it in a more uh, credible believable and hopeful manner uh, I'm grateful for technology evangelists and uh, and technologists like yourself and your co-founders for stepping into the gap and creating these bridging technologies for us. Um, as many of us shout from the rooftops, go solar, use wind, etc." You are the pragmatist who says, yes, but we also have to give people an option for, I mean, the Kroger's got problems. They got real problems that solar does, alone doesn't solve. So thank you, Shannon. Shannon Miller is the co-founder and CEO of Mainspring. It has been truly my pleasure and honor to host you today on Suncast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, that is one for the ages. I really want to say once again, thank you to Shannon and Maria Amundsen on her team, and even Nancy, our dear friend who is on the marketing team who connected us and made the dots work. Thanks to Peter Corsell and Rafi Garabedian for helping with the lift of getting this interview teed up. Thank you to everyone who always comes through to help make sure that we have the most interesting people on Suncast. Do you agree with that thesis? Were you riveted to this conversation as I was? I'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts. We've, of course, made a post about this episode up on LinkedIn. And if you're unfamiliar, right there in your podcast player in the description are the links to not just our social channels, but to the episode notes 
page for this specific episode. There you can get all the resources and highlights, social media, show notes, watch the blog post video that we made where we've embedded the Mainspring corporate video that I referenced and get access to all the different research links from Green Tech Media and Canary from PR Newswire that helped inform my ability to have a, a conversation with Shannon over the last 90 minutes that we are able to distill into what I hope to be an interesting interview for you all. If you agree, I'd love for you to leave us a, a thoughtful note on our LinkedIn post. And if you agree that Suncast is adding value to your life, I'd love it if you would share it with others or at least go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and leave your five-star enthusiastic rating and review. Again, that is ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. It takes just a few minutes and it makes a lifetime of difference because it helps others find the show in the same way that at some point you searched maybe solar or renewables or clean energy and found suncast for yourself. Help give that gift to others if you would. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to those who help make this show free to you, and that is our wonderful sponsors. You can learn more about them as well as how you could partner with us here and help the Suncast family move along at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. 